0: He's been known affectionately as Darwin's Rottweiler. He describes religious faith as one of the world's greatest evils. He's one of the most prominent new atheists, one of the four horsemen, and a member of the rather humbly self-entitled rights. Think of opponents of Christian faith in today's Britain, Well, Richard Dawkins certainly comes to my mind. And history is filled with such antagonists. You could think of the Roman emperors, such as Nero, Domitian, Trajan, Marcus Antonius. There have been many powerful opponents of Christian faith. That's true historically. It's true in the world today. If you think of leaders of countries like Pakistan, Iran, Saudi Arabia, North Korea, countries where it's illegal to convert and where converts fear their very lives for doing so. And it's true in today's Britain to some extent as well. Christianity, we're told, is dying, attendance is dropping, interest long gone. Christian faith is intellectually impossible. It's narrow minded, bigoted, intolerant. And closer to home we may think of individuals for whom we know it Christian faith seems so far away from their interests, they seem so hard hearted. So unwilling to engage. What hope is there for us as a church, for this country, for our world? Well, last week, we saw God's heart for mission. He's a great evangelist. He's purposefully committed to the spread of his word. He uses persecution. He welcomes unlikely people. He uses willing servants. And we saw this wonderful boundary passed as The Gospel went from the Jews to the Samaritans. But as we begin chapter 9, there's a problem. And the problem, firstly, is Saul, this fierce, fanatical opponent of the church. And then there's the problem of how the Gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. How will it go to the ends of the earth in the context of such opposition? Who would believe in Jesus? Who would follow him? See, God is a great evangelist. He's purposely committed to the spread of his word. But it's one thing to hear the word. It's another to believe it. Well, this evening, in Acts chapter 9, is a great encouragement because God is not only the great evangelist, he's also the great saviour. That is, God is the one who brings conversion. What we're going to see is that God saved whoever he chooses And he calls us to serve him. So I hope for a Christian we can have great confidence this evening that God is the great saviour. We're going to see two things. We're going to see a great conversion as we look at the life of Saul. He saves whoever he chooses. And a great commission he calls us to serve him. So firstly we'll see a great conversion. God saves whoever he chooses. Luke takes us back. To Saul, we previously told about him in eight verse three, where he's destroying the church. He's going from house to house, dragging away men, dragging away women, putting them in prison. He's doing all he can to destroy this business. And here we have um, him again, nine verse one. Just have a look. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He's described here in animal-like terms. So he is a wild beast, a predator. And he's desperate to get his prey. His prey are Christians. So he goes to the high priest in Jerusalem to obtain letters. He wants the authority to imprison Christians, uh, described as followers of the way in Damascus. He's like an ambitious fisherman, he wants to spread his net as far as he can get. And so he gets his extradition order and he travels to Damascus. He's intent on snuffing out this dangerous parasite. Damascus is a six-day journey from Jerusalem, about 135 miles. But as he gets close, something remarkable happens. Something that will change Saul's life and the history of this world forevermore. Have a look at verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So the light flashes around him, brighter than the midday sun. He's flung to the ground. He cannot stand in this presence. He hears a voice speaking to him directly. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Like Moses at Sinai, God appears to his servant. He addresses him by name. And Saul says, who are you, Lord? He sees this man, but he doesn't know who he is. He calls him Master. doesn't know his name. And it's Jesus who says to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So on the road to Damascus, Saul has an encounter with the risen and glorified and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. And did you notice, Jesus appears to Saul not to destroy him as he deserves, But he he appears to him to plead with him. Why? Why do you persecute me? Jesus appeals on behalf of his body, his church. For in persecuting the church, Saul has been persecuting Christ. Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And so Saul understands for the first time that Jesus is Lord. He is God's appointed king. He's the son of God. He's the ruler of this universe. He's alive. Now we don't know if Saul ever met Jesus in his earthly life. It's quite possible they were a similar age. But it seems that Saul was resisting what he knew of Jesus. It's interesting, in Acts 22, Jesus, 26, sorry, Jesus says after this, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. He he imagines Saul as a bullet fighting his farmer with his spiked stick. That is, Saul has been resisting God. He's had Jesus down as a charlatan, an imposter, but it's as if he knew all along he was wrong. And now he submits. He cannot help but see for sure that Jesus is Lord. He's alive. He's the risen king. The way is right. Saul has been persecuting Jesus. And you do not do that and win. And yet, as we saw wonderfully, Jesus has come not in judgment, but in grace. Jesus has come to change Saul, to save him, to transform him. Well, Saul's companions are speechless. They don't really know what's happened. They hear a sound, something's going on. This isn't just a figment of Paul's Saul's imagination. But they, they, they don't really understand. They, they don't see Jesus. And Saul is then left blind for three days. Not just the um, temporary blindness, due to seeing dazzling lights, but due to the encounter he's had with the risen Jesus. And what happens is that Saul is led to Damascus by his hand. Like a child, when I walk with my son, I hold his hand when we cross the road and I look, right, right, I look left, and then we cross the road. He's totally helpless. Without me, he's it's gonna really be pretty dangerous. And Saul is here like a child. Notice the irony here. Saul has come to Damascus to destroy with pride, with power. And yet he comes humbly in weakness and independence. He's come to imprison Christians, and yet he enters Damascus as a captive for Christ. John Calvin says, the raging lion has been changed into a bleating lamb. Well, in Damascus, he stays at the house of Judas in Straight Street. Straight Street sounds kind of comical to me, a bit like Circle Close and Round Avenue. But apparently Straight Street is still around today. It's one of the world's oldest inhabited streets. And when he's there, Saul receives a vision of this man called Ananias, who's going to come and open his eyes, give him sight. And what we find out is that Ananias has also received this vision. But when he receives the vision of going to Saul, he's worried. He's worried because he knows what Saul's like. And he says, look at verse 13, to the Lord, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. God, are you sure you know what you're talking about, Saul? I mean, Saul, he's going to come and kill us. How is that a good idea? I mean, it seems like madness to him. He's got no category, that God could change this man. And yet God says, go. Verse 15. Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And so Ananias understands, this is God's plan what is going to transform Saul? And so he goes to Saul, and he goes and he puts his hand on him. Saul can't see, right? But he can feel. And he can feel that hand on his arm. That is a wonderful sign of warmth and of acceptance. And then we have the most moving of introductions. Brother Saul is what he says. Brother Saul. Brother Saul because the enemy is now a friend. Because the persecutor is now one of the persecuted. Because Saul is now a brother. And in placing his hands on him, he receives the spirit of God. And he receives his sight. We're told that scales fall from his eyes. They seem to be a, a physical representation of, some, of his deep spiritual blindness. So he, he, he can see he's received the spirit. He's baptised because he now is united to Christ. And he's been cleansed from his sin. He takes food, regains his strength. Saul is a new man. It's a great conversion. God says, whoever he chooses. So Saul is an unlikely convert. Perhaps one of the most unlikely of all. And this is a significant moment um, in the Bible. Luke records this moment three times. Once here and twice in the lips of Saul himself. He says this to the Jews in Jerusalem and to King Agrippa in Rome. This is significant. And Saul, or Paul, as he's later known, says to Timothy this about the event. He says, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus, might display his unlimited patience as an example for us, for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. So according to Saul... What happened to him is an example to us. An example that God saves whoever he chooses. Saul is God's chosen instrument. Saul did not make a decision for Christ. Christ made a decision for Saul. It's an act of amazing grace. Amazing mercy. He was given what he never deserved. John Stott says, God's grace arrested him shone into his heart and swept over him like a flood. Amazing mercy. He didn't deserve it. He was this persecutor of Christians. He wasn't seeking for this, was he? He went to oppose Christians. But God sought him because God saves whoever he chooses. And wonderfully, what is true for Saul, and what was true then, 2,000 years ago, it's true for us today. That is, as a Christian, I may not think my conversion story is that exciting relative to Saul. It's only for me. There were no bright lights, no voice, no scales, no Damascus Road, and probably not for you either, I imagine. And yet, the truth is still the same. That is, the reason I'm a Christian is that God has chosen me. Now, yes, we are called to repent and believe, but God has chosen me. So Paul writes to the Ephesians, it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. God saves whoever he chooses. Now, does that mean I'm not responsible, if it's all God's doing? Well, no, the Bible clearly says we have a role. We are called to respond with repentance and with faith. And certainly to non Christians, we are to call them to respond to the gospel with repentance and faith. And yet for those of us who do believe, what we're wonderfully assured is that it's because God has chosen us. It's because God has enabled me to do that. Now clearly there's mystery there, isn't there? God is sovereign, I'm responsible. But those truths are taught side by side in Scripture. They're wonderfully true, hard to understand. Wonderfully true. Is it unfair? You might say. I mean, if God chooses some, why doesn't He choose others? It seems a bit unfair. But it's not a question the Bible asks. The Bible um, focuses more on the fact that it is amazing that God chooses anyone. Some get justice; they get what they deserve, and others get mercy. We're shown an amazing act of grace. God saves whoever he chooses. C.S. Lewis um, describes himself as one of the most reluctant of all converts. In his uh, autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he describes God's relentless pursuit of him. And he compares God to the great angler playing his fish, to a pack of hounds closing down on a fox, to a great chess player outmanoeuvring his opponent so that he has to say, checkmate. That is to say, he understood it was all God's initiative. God saves whoever he chooses. For those of us here this evening who are Christians, we are living examples of this. We may not feel like we were as far away as Saul was. But remember the Bible says we were all by nature enemies of God. Objects of his wrath, without hope, without Christ. It is only by a miracle, by the Spirit of God, that I see Jesus for who he is, I see myself for who I am, and that I turn to him. It is an act of amazing grace. He saved Saul, he saved us if we belong, and he can save others. So how should we respond to these truths? Well firstly, give thanks. If you're a Christian here this evening, then... Before the beginning of creation, God set his affection on you. The almighty God chose to have mercy on you. That is astonishing, isn't it? So that you could call God Father. So that you could know that your sins are forgiven. And have life beyond the grave. Give thanks. And then be confident. See, How is the gospel going to go to the nations when there's such opposition? How's it going to happen? How is it we can have confidence that as we preach God's word, people will be saved? That as individually, I seek to explain the gospel to my friends, people will be saved. I mean, why bother? Why pray for the conversion of people? Why persist with people year after year after year? I've got a friend of mine who's, who's, who's French, and he has no, in, no background at all in Christian faith. And he came to an event at church a few years ago, and he said to me, I'd like to read the Bible with you. I thought, great, fantastic. And so ever since, um, every two, three, four weeks, we've met to read the Bible, and we've gone through Mark's Gospel, and now we're going through John's Gospel. And I ask him most weeks, yeah, what do you think about this? And he always gives the same answer. I just don't believe it. Just doesn't believe it. And I might think to myself, why would I bother? carrying on with this guy and the reason is because God saves whoever he chooses if God wants to save my friend he's going to save him I know that he has the power I don't have the power I can give my best arguments and they're not that great they don't seem to work that well but I know that if I faithfully explain the gospel to this guy and pray for him faithfully God has the power to do what he wants I pray for a Five or six friends of mine who I've known over the years, every week, who seem to me far, far away from Christian faith. Now why do I do that? Why, Why would I keep on doing that? Well, because God saves whoever he chooses. I mean, just think of someone you know. Perhaps a family member, a friend, a colleague. Someone you think is just so far from possibly believing these things. See, if God wanted to, God could save that person. Now, there's mystery, isn't there? We don't know why He chased someone or others. But we know that he has power to change the hardest of hearts, to to give life to the dead, to open the blindest of eyes. This gives us great confidence that as a church, we're not wasting our time. Because God is a God of astonishing mercy and power. We've seen it in Saul. We know it in our lives. A great conversion. God saves whoever he chooses. And then secondly, a great commission. God calls us to serve him. This chapter is, of course, about Saul's conversion. But it is much true that it's about Saul's commission. Because Jesus doesn't leave Saul where he is. Now he calls him to serve him. And service for Paul looks like two things. It is to witness and it is to suffer. Saul is to be a witness of Christ to verse 15 so God says to Ananias this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel see how is the gospel going to go to the Gentiles to the ends of the earth for Saul the persecutor becomes Saul the great missionary the missionary to the Gentiles and what do we see him doing well look at verse 20 at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. It's no surprise, is it, that immediately we see him doing these things? Just imagine you were a Jew in that synagogue on that Sabbath day, and you—I don't know what you did. Maybe you opened up your scroll from the Bible. And you talk to your friends, "Oh, who's going to be teaching us today?" And you look up, and there's Saul. What? Saul? That can't be. That can't be Saul. That's his twin. That's not Saul. Amazing. Welcome to Modern Road. Great to have you. Richard Dawkins is going to be preaching to us on his conversion Acts chapter Amazing. So he goes, and immediately he's preaching, he's preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. He's a witness to the risen Lord Jesus, to his identity that he's the Son of God, to his experience of Jesus' changing in his life. Now this call is, of course, uh, unique for Saul. He is uniquely the missionary to the Gentiles. And yet it's also true for all Christians. We are all to witness to Christ. We're to speak of Jesus. We're to speak of the transformation that our lives, that we've, we've known in our lives. We're called to be witnesses. So the New Testament doesn't really know of a private Christian. Someone who just keeps these things to themselves. So oh, that's for me, not for you. I don't like to talk about my faith. The New Testament doesn't really know of a private And So there's a challenge for us. Are we those who witness to Christ? Are we those who pray for open doors? That is, opportunities to share our faith with other people. Are we those who look for open doors? Are we those who take open doors? Our conviction that God has power to save whoever he chooses will help us to do that. Are the church, is this high on our agenda? Are we unashamed? To preach the gospel to people. I wonder if there's a danger we're overly focused on being a good witness by our lives. I think that's essential, isn't it? That we live commendable lives. But being a witness is about speaking. As we saw last week, the Bible needs to be explained. People will not understand unless we speak. So let's pray we'd be willing witnesses of Christ. And then to suffer. It's striking, isn't it, what the Lord tells Ananias about Saul. Look at verse 16. He says, I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. Saul is saved to suffer. He's called to suffer for God's name. And we see this happening immediately too in verse 23. There's a in Damascus, as he's preaching, there's a conspiracy against him. Uh, the Jews want to kill him. He's baffled them by proving that Jesus is the Christ. So although they can't beat him intellectually, they try and do what they can physically. They're not interested in reason, in argumentation. They just want to kill him. Now, somehow he learns of their plan. And he and his followers um, lower him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Now, If anything like me, that sounds quite fun. It's like being a secret agent a spy. But actually, uh, Paul reflects on this with great shame. 2 Corinthians 11, he says this is a sign of his weakness. It's embarrassing. I couldn't even go through the city gates. I had to be let down in a basket. Ridiculous. Then he goes to Jerusalem. And again, we see a similar story. First of all, there's pain because he's rejected by the apostles. Then there's joy because Barnabas accepts him. So he goes preaching again to the Jews But there's no room for openness, there's no room for debate. They just want to kill him. And so he has to leave to Caesarea on the west coast and then back to Tarsus. So Saul learns right away in his Christian life what Christian living is all about. And it's sobering, isn't it? Because what it is, is to suffer. He left Jerusalem to go and get fugitive Christians. And the second time he leaves Jerusalem, he leaves as a fugitive Christian. This is his pattern from here on in. And he says this is the pattern for all of us. So he says to the Philippian church, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. That is authentic Christian living. His experience is to be our experience. God calls us to serve him, to suffer. As we saw last week, this is all part of God's plan. The great persecution of the church in chapter 8 led to dispersion, which led to evangelism. It is how God does the work in, in us. And it's how God grows his kingdom. He does it through suffering. God calls us to suffer. And so, as we close, there's a challenge for us, isn't there? And that is, are we willing to suffer? Our society, as we said, is increasingly anti-Christian. The temperature is rising. And so, how will we respond? Will we retreat? Will we just fit in? Or are we willing to stand up? Just think of a situation in your life where you know... There will be some form of suffering of being willing to be associated with Christ and to speak of Christ. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's at college. It would be easier to keep quiet, wouldn't it? People would respect you more. That's the challenge for us, isn't it? Am I willing to suffer? Let's pray we'd be willing to do that. Let's pray we'd be willing to be like Christ, to be, to look for the Father's commendation. Let's pray that individually, let's pray that as a church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, suffering is the mark of the authentic Christian. God calls us to serve him, to suffer. Well, there are many opponents of the Christian faith today. Richard Dawkins is one, and many much closer to home. And yet we can be confident that God will carry out his plans and his purposes his plan to make disciples of the nations a great conversion that God saves whoever he chooses let's give thanks and let's be confident and a great commission he calls us to serve him so let's be willing to witness and to suffer